Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. Whoop, whoop. It is your host, Grayson Decker, back again on a Wednesday here for episode number seven. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. It's going to be a crazy case. Well, really just a crazy man and what he did to society. And I think my only announcement is that I'm a terrible sister and I forgot to give a shout out to my sister, Mackenzie, last week in the Thomas Brown case because she is actually the one that recommended that case to me. So thanks, Mackenzie, for recommending the case to me. I'm so sorry I forgot. I love you. Uh, And yeah, let's get into the case. All right, everyone. So today we're going to be covering the railroad killer. Dun, dun, dun crazy man. Very crazy man. I'm going to give you some background information, but I'm going to preface this by saying that it is really hard to find information on him and who he was as a person like in his early days because he's an immigrant from Mexico and there's just really not a whole lot of information out there about him. Angel Materino Resendez was born August 1st, 1960 in Zucar de Matamoros, Puebla, Mexico. His birth name was Angel Leoncio Reyes Resendez, and he was a legal immigrant. But government records show that he had actually been deported back to Mexico on multiple occasions, at least four times from the time that he moved to the United States in 1973. It later comes out that his mother is Virginia de Matarino, and she states that her son did not spend his formative years with her, but with a family that seemed to lack proper guidance. She also states that homosexuals in Puebla may have sexually assaulted him at a young age, and I just want to give like a heads up that this is just speculation, and I personally would never want to single out a specific group of individuals in a negative connotation, especially when it comes to sexual orientation at all. Just put that out there. It's her words, not mine. He also has a supposed sister that is in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was virtually an orphan during the most formative years of his life, resulting in a long future of criminal activity. Some of his crimes included illegally crossing the border, falsely claiming citizenship, possession of a concealed weapon, defraud of social security, burglary, trespassing with a firearm, and obviously the biggest being capital murder. He illegally rode trains all over the United States to carry out his crime, coining him the name the Railroad Killer. He had many aliases, but the one that is known to the public and the one that the FBI was searching for was Rafael Resendez Ramirez. He was suspected of up to 15 murders all over the United States during the 90s, and he caused immense terror for those who lived in railroad towns. He was a very hard killer to find due to him using trains to move from one place to another, and he was always one step ahead of law enforcement because he could basically just kill someone and then immediately bail and go to a completely different state if he wanted to. He would use items of opportunity to harm his victims. Some of these included rocks, a pickaxe, blunt objects, a possible wooden board, and multiple other items. He would take sentimental items and he would even lay out the licenses of his victims to learn about them. He took jewelry and he would give these items to his mother and wife that were back in Mexico, which I just find disgusting. Like you're going to kill someone and 
then give your wife the victim's jewelry. Just very weird. And he would also, and I'm going to give a trigger warning, he would rape some of his victims. The first victim of the railroad killer is Christopher Mayer. He was 21 at the time and attending the University of Kentucky. Him and his girlfriend, Holly Dunn, were going on a walk in Lexington, Kentucky on the night of August 28, 1997. They were doing this because they were attending a party that evening and it had gotten kind of boring. So the two of them decided that they were going to walk along the railroad tracks and, you know, just talk about random shit. I don't know what couples do, whatever, what they talk about. Uh, they finally decide that they want to start heading back to the party, and this is when they come across a man that had appeared behind the electrical box located on the side of the railroad tracks. He asks the two of them for money, ties them up, and gags them. He basically, like, ties Holly up with, like, her belt, and he rips her t-shirt, and that's what he uses to gag them with, and he ties Christopher up with his actual, like, backpack straps and it's just very very brutal uh and holly actually states because she survived this attack that he had put them on the grass that was not on the physical tracks but the grass that's like on the side and he would like walk across the tracks for just brief moments doing whatever and that's when the two of them would discuss a plan to escape. And Holly was actually able to get her hands untied during one of these times. And, you know, he does that a couple of times. And then, like, the last time that he comes over the tracks, he is holding a ginormous rock. And this is when he walks over to Christopher and he quite literally just drops this ginormous rock on his head. And it is what ends up killing him. He then, trigger warning, climbs on top of Holly and rapes her. And during this attack, she tries to scream, tries to fight him off, like is doing everything to escape this horrendous situation that she is in. And he responded to this by holding either an ice pick or a screwdriver. She couldn't tell what it was, but it was one of the two. And he held this to her neck and he said, look how easily I could kill you. And then he proceeds to stab her in the neck. Are you kidding me? Oh my god. She even went as far as ripping off her fingernails and digging into the dirt during this attack so that if she was actually taken, somebody would see that she had been there and that they needed to look for her. He then brutally beat her with a wooden board and obviously, like I said, he stabbed her in the neck and he raped her. So just a very brutal attack. And he actually believed that she had died. But in fact, she was just knocked out and she had survived this attack. So once Holly woke up, he was gone because he fled the scene because he thought that she was dead. And so she gets up. She's very disoriented. She knows that she's hurt and she knows that she needs to find help. And she doesn't know where her shoes are. So she walks barefoot on the gravel and broken glass to seek out help. She eventually makes it to the home of Chad Goats, who was a senior at the University of Kentucky at the time. And he is able to get her the help that she needs. She had extensive injuries. She had a broken eye socket, a broken jaw, cuts all over her face and staples and she even had to have her jaw wired shut in this healing process but through all of this she was and is the only victim who survived the wrath of Resendez 
uh, and she is the only one who is able to testify against this horrible man, like, terrible, but he made a huge mistake letting her live because she's a badass, and I love her. She goes on to do great things, but anyways, Holly was able to give authorities a description of her assailant, and this gave them a clear image of who they were looking for. She described him as a male, possible Hispanic, five foot six to five foot eight in height. He had kind of wavy black hair. He had glasses on. And she also stated that he wasn't muscular, but he was kind of wiry. Just creepy. And this man, he is just terrifying. I do not like the way he looks. And that sounds judgmental, but he's fucking creepy don't like him. If I saw him, I'd be scared. They also, sadly, because of the rape, were able to obtain a DNA sample, but also very good that they got the DNA sample. The second victim of Resendez is Leafy Mason, and she was 87. Are you kidding me? That makes me want to cry, but I digress. It's fine. It's okay. On October 4th, 1998, in Hughes Springs, Texas, Leafy Mason is in her home when Resendez enters through a window. She is living just 50 yards from the Kansas City Southern Rail Line tracks. So the perfect crime of opportunity for Resendez because he rode the freaking train illegally because he's a terrible person. And he hammered Leafy Mason to death with an antique iron. Resendez covered her body with a blanket before fleeing the scene and Resendez's huge mistake in this particular murder was that he had left a bloody palm print at the scene of the crime. His third victim was Claudia Benton, and she was 39 at the time. On December 16th, 1998, in West University Place, Texas, this is like a super small town that is like located within the Houston, Texas city limits. Dr. Claudia Benton was in her home alone. Her husband and her two children were actually away at the time on a trip. Resendez broke into her home and brutally attacked her. She had been stabbed repeatedly and this was in her back and hands and she had been trigger warning, raped, and she had 19 blunt force injuries to her head and her autopsy actually showed that she had three depression fractures to her skull. So a very, very brutal attack. Multiple things were stolen from her home like jewelry, a stereo, a guitar, a banjo, and the biggest thing was her Jeep Cherokee. And on December 18th, 1998 in San Antonio, Texas, police recover her stolen Jeep Cherokee in a motel parking lot. This motel was close to the railroad tracks. Surprise, surprise. The authorities proceeded to process this Jeep Cherokee and they were able to obtain fingerprints from the vehicle's steering column. On December 26, 1998, after running the prints obtained from the vehicle through APHIS, which is Automated Fingerprint Identification Systems, and this was the APHIS for Texas. So investigators were able to get a match for Carlos Clothier Rodriguez, and he had actually been arrested in Carson County, Texas in 1993, and this was for stealing a motor vehicle. And because of this, a 10 print card was created for Carlos. And that's basically just like a card that has 
every single fingerprint on it, so all 10 of your fingers, hence the name 10 print card. It was super fun, we did it in class, I had a great time. But anyways, this would actually end up being one of the many aliases that Resendez had to use. Three weeks after the murder, a judge signs a warrant for Resendez, but this is only actually for burglary, not murder, which, like, really? Are you kidding me? He is clearly the person behind this attack. But I digress. His fourth and fifth victims were Reverend Norman J. or Skip Cernick, who was 46 at the time, and his wife, Karen Cernick, who was 47 at the time. On May 2nd, 1999, in Weimar, Texas, Reverend Norman and his wife, Karen, are at home in the parsonage of the United Church of Christ, which was right near the railroads. Are we surprised? No. Resendez strikes them to death with a sledgehammer that he had stolen from their garage. He then steals their red Mazda, and it is actually later found in San Antonio, and the fingerprints that were recovered from this vehicle match that of Dr. Claudia Benton's assailant, aka that Carlos alias of Resendez. His sixth victim was Noemi Dominguez, and she was 26 at the time, and her murder occurred on June 4th, 1999 in Houston, Texas. She was clubbed to death in her apartment where she was just by herself when he broke in. She was a school teacher, and she had her whole life ahead of her. Her white 1993 Honda Civic is found just seven days later at the International Bridge at Del Rio, Texas. Victim number seven is Josephine Convica, and she is actually 73. Just breaks my heart. Oh my god. On June 4th, 1999, in Fayette County, Texas, Josephine was murdered while in bed with a blow to her head using a pointed garden tool. She was living in a farmhouse near the railroad tracks, and it was not far from Weimar, Texas, where Reverend Norman and his wife Karen were killed. And Resendez actually kind of like messed with her vehicle, but he could never find the physical keys to her car, so he left the home without stealing it. And at this point, the public kind of started to pick up on the fact that there was a terrible serial killer on the loose, and his case kind of started to, or not his case, but like who he was, whatever, kind of just started to gain a whole lot of publicity and maybe this is why he heads north or maybe he's just crazy and wants a different hunting ground i don't know but he does like head up to illinois at this point his eighth and ninth victim are george morber who is 80 and his daughter carolyn frederick who is 52 at the time on june 15th 1999 in gorham illinois just a hundred yards from the railroad track there's a pattern here. George Morber and his daughter, Carolyn Frederick, were in their mobile home at the time, um, and Resendez just breaks in. He shoots George in the head with a shotgun, and then he proceeds to bludgeon Carolyn to death with that gun. Frederick's red pickup truck is stolen from the home, and it's actually eventually seen by someone in Caro, Illinois, just 60 miles away from Gorham, um, and it was somebody that looked like Resendez, and it matched his description to a T, and he's the one that's seen driving this truck. All of his victims seem to be victims of opportunity, 
but also simultaneously, he meticulously picked these victims because like we talked about, he is not a very large man. He's only like 5'7", so his victims couldn't be much larger than him. Like, I'm even taller than this man. So he would obviously pick fights where he knew that he would win. And this is not to say that he is an organized killer by any means. As you can probably tell, he is a very disorganized approach to all of his murders. He finds opportunity in every aspect from the victim to the weapon. He leaves fingerprints and palm prints just waiting to be identified by law enforcement. And also, it seemed that none of his murders were planned. So, like I said, he's an opportunist. He is very different from Randy Kraft, who we previously talked about, in the way that he is a transient killer. He does not stay in one location for a long time at all, and is quite literally always on the move. I mean, he literally, he killed two people, two different women, that were 60 miles apart in one day. Like, he is, he's moving. He's on the move all the time. Uh, and this is actually, like we talked about earlier, like why it was so hard for law enforcement to catch him because he was never in the same place at once. Like he was always moving around. So that's just the type of person he was. Just very shitty. I do not like this man. He caused an immense amount of terror in communities all across the United States, especially in small railroad towns. No one wanted to be his next victim. My mom even remembers, like, we lived in Panhandle, Texas for uh, about five years, but we moved there in 1999 of February, and so this was, like, actively going on, and everyone in the town was worried about him coming to Panhandle, and, like, it is a very, very small town, and it has a major railroad that runs just right beside the outskirts of town so you could imagine like why everyone would be so scared so state and city law enforcement agencies began the hunt for the railroad killer uh they upped security with freight trains and searched the train cars for any sign of resendez police even looked at homeless shelters soup kitchens and blood centers These are all places where migrant workers were known to frequent, so that's why they're heavily searching those areas. And in June of 1999, Resendez is placed on the top 10 most wanted list by the FBI. And authorities used VICAP, or Violent Crime Apprehension Program, to compare all of the different components of the crimes to link Resendez to all of them. There was even a $125,000 reward for information leading to the capture of Resendez. There were posters plastered all over towns with Resendez's description on them. 5'7 male, weighing about 140 to 150 pounds, black hair, brown eyes, and a dark complexion. He had scars on his right ring finger, his left arm, and his forehead. And he had two tattoos, a snake on his left forearm, and a flower on his left wrist. He had dozens of different aliases, birth dates, and social security numbers, and he worked as a day laborer, migrant worker, or even an auto mechanic. So July 1st, 1999, Fayette County, Texas authorities find that Noemi Dominguez's DNA was found in Josephine Convicka's house, and this was able to tell them that 
He had first murdered Noemi and then he had driven her vehicle to the home of Josephine Convicka and then murdered her. Uh, And this was all before he had abandoned that vehicle at the bridge of Del Rio, Texas. Uh, But this linked the two murders together. And obviously they were carried out by the same person because why would somebody's DNA from 60 miles away be at this crime scene unless they were carried out by the same person? Resendez was put on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list, like we talked about before, but it was because he was seen to be a danger to the society. He was a very dangerous and violent person, and it was explained that he demonstrated that he could use almost any kind of object to take a human life in a very violent manner, and they said that they had to catch him, and this was Don K. Clark, who was an FBI special agent in charge of the Houston office at the time. During the manhunt for Resendez, they received thousands of tips, but most of them were just not useful. But on July 7th, 1999, the FBI recruited Resendez's wife, Julieta Reyes, for help retrieving him. And she actually brought forward 93 pieces of jewelry that Resendez had mailed her. And Noemi Dominguez's family actually identified that 13 of these pieces were hers. And then Claudia Benton's husband, George, he claimed several other pieces. And this next part makes me so mad because it's just very unfortunate. But I digress. On June 2nd, 1999, Resendez was apprehended near El Paso when he was attempting to cross the border illegally. And while he was being held in custody by the United States Immigration and Naturalization Service, or INS, they did a computer search on Resendez and they basically compared his fingerprints and his photo to a list of possible fugitives. But it failed to identify him as a wanted man. And this was because law enforcement obviously lacked the proper technology to allow them to compare notes instantaneously and determine patterns with that specific suspect that they're looking for. He was then deported back to Mexico, and this release allowed him to take the lives of Noemi Dominguez and Josephine Convicta within 48 hours of being released. 48 hours. He then continued to go on to murder George Morber and Carolyn Kendrick, like we talked about. That is four people. Four people. When he was right under their noses, like literally in custody. But I digress. I, it's just so annoying. Resendez had a long criminal history before the killings even began. And John Douglas, who is a former FBI agent, spent a lot of his time in the field pursuing other individuals that are like Resendez. And he actually talked about like what he thought about Resendez. So he stated that he probably started killing somewhere in his late 20s. He may have killed people like himself initially, males, transients. And this is because he was continuously sent back to Mexico by the United States deportation officers uh and they basically found him in this country illegally made him angry at the population at large how america basically represents that it's a wealthy country uh and he just keeps getting kicked out and he basically states that he just can't make ends meet 
And coupled with these feelings, these inadequacies fueled by the fact that he is known to take alcohol, take drugs, lowers his inhibitions, and he goes out and kills. Early June of 1999, Texas Ranger Drew Carter made communications with Resinda's sister, Manuela, who was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time. They had tracked him down to a town near Cudad Juarez in Mexico, and Drew Carter told Manuela that he could promise three things to her if Resendez would surrender himself, and he basically promised personal safety in jail, visitation rights, and a psych evaluation. On June 12, 1999, a Monday, Manuela received a fax from the DA's office in Harris County, and this fax contained in writing all that her and Carter had agreed upon. So after this, and after communicating to the family member that was in Mexico, basically acting as like a buffer between Manuela and Resendez, uh, they relayed the information to him, and he agreed to surrender himself the following morning, July 13th, 1999, at 9 a.m. Carter and Manuela met with him on the bridge that connected Zaragoza, Mexico, and El Paso. He had finally surrendered himself, and he was in law enforcement's possession and was no longer allowed to kill anyone else. Resendez had evaded law enforcement for quite some time, but he was finally caught. Thank God. On May 8th, 2000, in Houston, Texas, his trial began. Resendez pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but obviously, once all of the facts were presented to the jury, they could see right through this defense of insanity. Are you kidding me? Why do they always do that? Like, why do they always say that that's going to help them? But I digress. Anyways, he was convicted of capital murder and the death of Dr. Claudia Benton, and because of this, he was sentenced to death. This is also the trial where Holly Dunn tells her very brutal story on stand, and she even points out Resendez in the courtroom when asked if her assailant is there. What a powerful woman, honestly. The amount of courage it would take to stand up to such a horrific man and to be the only victim that made it out alive makes me want to cry, but it's just crazy. Like, what a powerful woman. Go girl. Like I said, she's queen. His execution date was given to him on January 6, 2006, and he ended up being executed on June 27, 2006. Before he was executed, he basically confessed to multiple other murders, and because of this, he was linked to at least 15 different murders in six different states, including Texas, Kentucky, Georgia, Illinois, Florida, and California. And that is the railroad killer. Terrible, terrible, terrible person. I'm telling you, creepy as fuck. Gives me very bad vibes. I do not like looking at pictures of him. He makes me uncomfortable, but that is the case. I'm sorry that I probably mispronounced a lot of things. I'm not good at pronouncing stuff like that. I never took Spanish. I only took sign language in high school. So I don't even know how to like make my mouth make those kind of words sound good at all. So I, I genuinely apologize. But yeah, and I also apologize, kind of a shorter episode. I wish there was just more background information about him as a person to kind of really tell us why he turned into such a horrific person 
in general, but there's just simply not. I'm going to give you all of my socials like I always do at the end of the episode, but specifically, you're going to want to keep in touch with me on social media because here in the next couple of months, October specifically, because we love spooky shit, I'm going to be doing something very special. Maybe an opportunity for you, possibly, I don't know. So you should just follow me on all my social medias to keep in touch about this awesome thing that I'm planning on doing. So my email, the not so grateful dead pod at gmail.com website, the not so grateful dead dot podbean.com and Instagram, the not so grateful dead underscore podcast, TikTok, the not so grateful dead pod, Facebook, the not so grateful dead podcast with Grayson Decker. And that is me on social medias. Please follow me. Please reach out. I love to hear about cases that you want to hear covered. Obviously, I've already had some really good recommendations. But yeah, just let me know. I'm excited. I want to cover what y'all want to hear. And I think that's about it. I will see you on Sunday. And I promise to make it a longer episode. I'm so sorry. Life has been hectic. But I hope I did this case justice at least is just horrific, but I love you all so very much and I can't wait to see you on Sunday. Goodbye!